Holy feeling the heat. What happens next? At a time of division, uh, we've got to rally around the things that unites us as Americans. Extending Kansas City's emergency order, we pick apart the mayor's new COVID rules. And while the focus is now on impeaching the current president, what will the Biden administration mean for us here in KC? Those stories and the rest of the week's news straight ahead. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlies Gorley, Haas and Wilkerson Insurance, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Haynes. So much to keep track of on what has been another roller coaster week of news. For going sleep to keep us abreast of how events are impacting us here in the Metro. From KNBC 9 News Chief Political Reporter Michael Mahoney. From the investigation team at 41 Action News, Kat Reed. Keeping you up to date on KCURFM, Steve Kraske. And the editor of the Call newspaper, Eric Wesson. As the president was being impeached for a second time for the second week, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley coming under intense pressure. They may not have created a card for it, but Kansas City-based Hallmark now wants its money back. They're demanding Hawley and new Kansas Senator Roger Marshall return the campaign cash the company gave them following last week's events in Washington. The greeting card maker is upset that our two local senators continue to challenge the Electoral College vote after the Capitol building was stormed. Other Kansas City companies, from Cerner to Commerce Bank, also say they're pulling their campaign contributions. Last week, Hawley's biggest worry was Simon and Schuster cancelling his upcoming book and fending off calls from Democratic lawmakers to resign. But does this loss of money represent a bigger hit to his political career, Steve? Well, it's a hit. There's no question, Nick, particularly if this kind of activity continues. But having said that, uh, I think some context is needed here. You know, think about this just for a moment. If Josh Hawley was on the ballot a month from now, or three months from now in a state like Missouri that went for Donald Trump, Nick, by 16 points in November, 19 points four years ago. Would Josh Hawley lose? I'm not convinced the answer to that question is yes. Uh, a lot of these businesses who have stepped away from him are going to come back at some point, Nick, because a six-year term, he's got four years left, is a very long time. Cat. You know, it is important to point out this is not a large uh, portion of his contributions. These are small amounts, largely symbolic, but Hallmark is unique in actually asking both Senators Roger Marshall and Josh Hawley to give the money back. So that is how it's a little bit different in this scenario. So, Michael Mahoney, you know, as um, Katrine mentions, this is a small amount of money. When it comes to Hallmark, over two years, $7,000 to Hawley, to uh, Roger Marshall, $5,000 over two years. The Associated Press did a, an interesting analysis of these campaign contributions and said, it really, these corporate PACs don't actually give a huge amount. In fact, in Hawley's case, that would have been just 15% of his total war chest. So is it, as Kat says, more uh, symbolic than substantive? Yeah, it is. Uh, but money is money. It's uh, the cliche, it's the mother's milk of politics. The astonishing thing about the Cerner PAC decision is the fact in 2018, the Cerner PAC did not give Josh Hawley a dime, not one cent. Now, they donated $10,000 to Claire McCaskill in two separate uh, donations of uh, $5,000, one 
before the primary, one for, uh, one for the general. And later, after Hawley was elected, Cerner Pack gave him 15000 in three contributions of five each. But they, they didn't give him a dime in his uh, federal race for the, for the United States Senate. The, um, the long view here is, uh, I think Steve's absolutely right, the political damage to uh, Josh Hawley in the state of Missouri is limited. Uh, I do think that uh, there's some uh, second thoughts going on now about what uh, his role is in the 2024 campaign. And the uh, Ted Cruz campaign is probably making some of the same guesses. It depends on what the Trump voter in the Republican Party looks like in a few years. And uh, Steve said it's a long time from then, from now to then. Eric. Yeah, I agree. And uh, because four years is a long time to remember, but it depends on who lines up and who starts running a campaign now to run against him. Uh, four years is a long time. And I believe when it comes to committee assignments that will be coming up within the next month ago, he'll probably be pigeonholed into an, uh, maybe the chair of the pencil sharpening committee or something so that his talents can't uh, extend to where people would pay attention for to him. He might be the squeaky wheel in the Senate, but I, I doubt very seriously if people remember what he did last week, four years from now. Steve, that committee assignment thing is important, and it's going to be Mitch McConnell that decides it. Hawley sits on Homeland Security, but more importantly, he also sits on Judiciary. Those two committees are going to launch an investigation of the attack on, on the Capitol. If Hawley had to give something up. The last thing I believe he would give up, and I don't know this for a fact, but uh, he he cherishes that seat on the uh, Senate Steve. Judiciary Committee. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that would be something that he probably would not want to give up. But it just depends on how they they uh, pigeonhole him when this thing gets underway. Okay, Steve Kraske. That's yeah. a good point. It'll be interesting also, I think, to see um, moving forward how this impacts his ability to co-sponsor legislation, to see how other senators are, are willing to work with him. People are very upset right now. That could subside with time. We'll just kind of have to wait and see. Steve. I think that's the big question. Kat just hit it. How effective can this senator be going forward in the wake of this unbelievable controversy? I mean, it's been a long time since Mike Mahoney and myself saw any politician from Missouri or Kansas get slapped around upside the head uh, like he has the last week. He's become something of a pariah in the U.S. Senate. Can this guy get anything done for Missouri going forward? That's the big question. Beyond all of the campaign cash, though, there is an effort, of course, to expel Josh Hawley from the Senate. Most political observers say that's not going to happen. But there is a growing movement to censor him. What does that actually mean, Michael Mahoney, and what impact would it have on Josh Hawley? When you're censured, it is the co your colleagues in the Senate or the House, or any place for that, uh, that matter, saying that you stepped over the line. You did something that was inappropriate. Now, censors, censors happen uh, in the United States Senate. They are very rare because it's regarded as, a, as an insult, to be honest about it. Uh, I don't think it will happen in this case. I think what, uh, what they've got on their plate are really two things. Number one is uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democratic new majority want to confirm Biden's uh, cabinet choices. Then they will deal with the, uh, with the impeachment trial. And I don't think when that is over, there's going to be much of an appetite to uh, start uh, putting other folks to the uh, 
to the post and, and roast them. Before I move on, I don't want to dismiss um, what happened with the impeachment hearing, but every single Democrat, Steve Kransky, uh, in our Kansas and Missouri delegation voted yes, and every single Republican uh, voted no. That was exactly the same as it was in 2019 when the president was first impeached. So no change in the political calculation here? Right. That wasn't a big surprise, Nick. The votes came down along party lines. That's just where our two states are right now when it comes to Donald Trump and how divisive this guy is. I don't think there was any drama or suspense around these votes at all. The only thing to note on that, Nick, and, and Steve, and you, you know this, is that the suburban St. Louis uh, uh, member of Congress, Ann Wagner, did not vote with the other members of the Republican uh, Missouri House delegation to object uh, to uh, the certification. She voted to accept the certification. Did you want to say something, Eric, before we moved on? Yeah, I was just going to just make an observation. Mitch McConnell, and we talked about... Uh, uh, Mike has said something about it earlier. I don't know if Ms. McConnell's real warm and fuzzy with uh, Holly right now, as some of the others are. I kind of think in some of his comments that he did when he made the whether or not they should uh, impeach, I think some of his comments were geared directly toward Holly. So I don't know about his committee assignments, but I don't think he's going to be sitting on top of the hill like he was. There was there, Nick, and uh, there was a quote attributed to Holly. Somebody asking that thing: Are you worried about not being as popular uh, with, with your colleagues? And his response was something to the effect: "You mean more unpopular than I already am?" <laughs> this week, I took a little trip down memory lane. I was looking through my notes from this time four years ago to see what we were talking about on this program when Donald Trump was getting ready to be inaugurated. On the show four years ago, we were asking, what will a Trump presidency mean for KC? Before we taped the show, Mike Pence had just spoken to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. In addition to urging me to send along greetings, he said, tell them we're going to do an infrastructure bill and it's going to be big. That's a good way to cozy up to mayors across the country, Nick, so many of whom are struggling with infrastructure, including Kansas City Mayor Sly James. That's a huge thing. It's going to make a lot of mayors very happy, Nick. All righty, Steve, that never happened. No, it never happened. And I think we really lack this time around some big names who might be moving into Joe Biden's cabinet. With This is an exception, uh, perhaps. Jason Klum, uh, a longtime regional general services administration uh, leader here in Kansas City, is making a play for that a top job out in Washington, D.C., Really interesting guy, uh, could have been a top state leader in Missouri a few years ago. He ran for statewide office and lost. He's someone to keep a really close eye on. Yes, Kat. And I'd say there are a couple big impacts of the Biden administration uh, on the Kansas City area, one that is just kind of going to happen everywhere and one that's specific to Kansas City. The first would be that people are desperately wanting uh, more relief from COVID. So people are looking for maybe an expansion of the eviction moratorium, some more stimulus funds. The Kansas City specific aspect is the uh, movement of those headquarters for the Department of Agriculture to the Kansas City area.
It'll be interesting to see what happens with those. Uh, from the things that I've read, it's unlikely that they'll move uh, everyone back to D.C., but what could happen is Kansas City becomes a field office, and then they rehire the people in D.C. Uh, who left the department because of the move to Kansas City. That's something to keep an eye on. With all of the yeah, focus, sorry, Mike, with all of the focus on the impeachment, I haven't heard many stories about what the Biden administration will do, particularly locally. What other impact might we see here? Well, number one, I think uh, I think you'll see, uh, especially Emmanuel Cleaver, uh, renew an aggressive push for federal housing funds uh, for our area. The uh, whole debate about uh, uh, what to do with the field offices of the USDA, the Ag Department, um, is going to be another one. Although there's a couple of things uh, to flesh out what Kat was saying here. Number one, there's state uh, investment money from both Kansas and Missouri. And these guys have locked into leases for these buildings. So uh, they're not, they're, they're not, not going to be moving. And then uh, uh, Sharice David sits on the House Infrastructure Committee. So does Sam Graves of Northern Missouri. Um, there'll be a push on that ele element, too. What other impact might we see locally, uh, Eric? I think it'll be an impact on crime. I think the uh, situations with crime here in the Kansas City metropolitan area, I think it'll be more focus and emphasis on it. I also agree with Mike that I think Congressman Cleaver will try to do something with housing, but also transportation. And that money and that plan could help expand the streetcar uh, to go in either more directions or improve an already improving uh, bus system that we have here. So I look, transportation, housing, uh, those two areas would be impacted. But, but didn't the Trump administration, uh, so it was during the Trump administration that the streetcar got its money for the expansion, yeah. uh, Eric, and also, didn't we also have hundreds of uh, federal officers coming into town to help solve the crime situation? The federal officers came in, and I'm going to be uh, objective here. It did do something with it, but after they left, and while they were here, people were still, the homicide rate still it uh, went up. So we had a record number of homicides here. Uh, so I just look for it to do something a little more concrete when it comes to crime. Steve. You know, for years, uh, it seems like every new Democratic president comes in, Emmanuel Cleaver's name gets kicked around. He's now in his mid-70s, Nick. He's not going to lead a cabinet agency. But to underscore a point that both Eric and Michael just made, Emmanuel Cleaver now emerges as one of the, just a three or four leading voices on federal housing policy in this country. That's a huge promotion, in a sense, for him. He'll now lead a top committee. That's a big deal. Okay, Kat, and, and, go on. Yes, circling back to crime really quickly, I just want to point out that the Biden administration's approach to crime and criminal justice will be very different than the Trump administration's. So interventions that we would see in Kansas City would be different, probably, than Operation Legend. Just real quick to emphasize Steve's point here, Emmanuel Cleaver is not only a veteran congressman and not only a Democrat, but Emmanuel Cleaver was there for Joe Biden when it wasn't cool to be there for Joe Biden. Absolutely. And the Biden administration knows that.
As Steve pointed Good out point. at the very beginning, is this going to be an administration bereft of any big local voices? The Bill Clinton White House turned to former Kansas Congressman Dan Glickman to be Agriculture Secretary. George W. Bush chose former Missouri Governor John Ashcroft as his Attorney General. Barack Obama turned to Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius to lead his Health Department. And Donald Trump selected Kansas Congressman Mike Pompeo to be his Secretary of State. So uh, uh, that, that is not going to happen this time around, Steve? No, it's not. But again, I'll go back. I think the best we got this time, Nick, is Jason Klum, a former state rep from Butler, uh, well regarded in Democratic circles in the Kansas City area. He'll be making a play for that top job in the GSA. Michael. And the other one that I wouldn't dismiss, I don't think it's going to be a cabinet uh, uh, appointment or anything like that. But Jason Kander is pretty darn involved in veterans affairs in uh, on many different levels. I wouldn't be surprised to see him with some sort of federal role. Next up, a heads up. You're going to be wearing a mask at least until May. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas this week extending the mask mandate and the city's emergency health order for at least four months. Yet at the same time, he announces he's letting bars and restaurants stay open later. We will join the rest of the region with a midnight closing time. And within the month, we will review whether that closing time should either be extended or if that closing time should actually be more restrictive thereafter. When COVID cases are still high, vaccine distribution is going slower than expected. Eric Wesson, why is the mayor deciding to relax the rules for restaurants and bars? Well, uh, according to him, people are acting a little better in those places. Uh, they're wearing their masks. They're honoring the curfews. But I think one of the biggest points that we have is a loss of sales tax revenue and people going over to Kansas and staying out later. And you got the chief situation with their victories coming up that people are going to want to be out in restaurants and bars. So I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the economics and the pushback, especially with restaurant week and that kind of thing coming up. I think it was just symbolic of how we are making some progress no matter how uh, small it seems. Kat Reed, the um, Kansas City Star editorial board says this is sending the wrong message at a very dangerous time. What do public health leaders say? Well, I, I know public health leaders are, have still been very concerned about the increase, the rise in cases, and other political officials as well. In a statement, uh, Jackson County Executive Frank White expressed some skepticism, citing the rising cases, but said, you know, they would adopt it because they want everything to be uniform. It gets confusing when you have a patchwork of rules in different places. I'll say that in Wyandotte County, they specifically cited the input from small business owners as part of their decision decision to loosen the restrictions. It will be interesting to see uh, how this impacts our positivity rate. And, um, you know, we just won't know for a little bit. Michael. Yeah, the other element of this that was uh, uh, important, I think, is the fact that the city is A, going to launch a survey and B, start a sign-up sheet to uh, uh, vaccinate Kansas City, Missouri residents. Now, the caveat on that is the fact that they've got a thousand doses for a city of a half million people, and they can see that's nowhere close to what they need, and that this process is going to be long and slow. On Thursday, Missouri started to talk actively about what they're going to be doing in terms of rolling out the second and third waves of the vaccination process and who will be in those lines. Kansas is doing the same thing. They say that their vaccination pro uh, program is is getting better, and but they also all admit that they can do what they can do at the state and federal level, but it is a 
entirely dependent on how much vaccine they get from the feds. And it's Washington that's controlling the allocations. Kat. Yeah, really quickly, going back to Mayor Quentin Lucas's decision, while we've been talking about cases going up, one st statistic that he had specifically cited was the number of cases among 18 to 29-year-olds has been going down, which I think is believed to be, well, at least 21 and up is the population going out, staying out late. So that was one metric that he was using, even though a lot of the overall numbers are going up. Steve. You know, he points out that the number of uh, deaths via COVID is dropping. He points out that these hours make Kansas City in sync with the rest of the counties around us. But it's hard for me to disagree with my former colleagues on the editorial board, Nick. Do you really uh, loosen the rules at a time when COVID's doing what COVID's doing? I'm not sure you want to be in that space But, right but, but aren't other top leaders across the country doing the same thing, including Andrew Cuomo in New York? Well, there's, there, there is some of that going on, Nick, but uh, this pandemic is not over. Loosening the rules right now arguably sends the wrong signal. This week, Jackson County's presiding judge temporarily halts all evictions after two deputies shoot a man while carrying out an eviction in Blue Springs. A growing renters' rights group called Casey Tenants has been trying to shut down evictions by chaining themselves to the doors of local eviction courts. They even protested outside the home of a local judge who hears many of those eviction cases. Did it take a tenant being shot, though, for change to happen, Kat? It, I think, was a combination of factors. I think that they specifically cited the shooting, saying this shows uh, just how high emotions are running right now, the societal pressures with COVID. Um, but I think also the actions of KC tenants really impacted what this. What I find very interesting is that in December, I had asked about them suspending evictions or extending a moratorium. And the court spokesperson told me the presiding judge can't do that. He doesn't have the authority to do that. You know, if something came out from the state or other officials, we could made it, we could follow that. But it is interesting that now after all of this, he can suspend evictions. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting switch. Something on this topic that's very important to point out is that these two deputies uh, who went to the man's house to evict him, they're not sheriff's deputies. They're actually um, just deputies for the court itself. And these are armed uh, deputies who are not necessarily, they're not law enforcement, but they are armed. And we did a story showing that they do not receive crisis intervention training. And they're dealing with people on an extraordinarily difficult day of their lives. So I thought that that was very interesting. Yes. Eric, th this, is, this is just a temporary uh, suspension, though. This is only supposed to last two weeks. What happens then? Well, then I think evictions uh, go right back uh, into place yet, Nick. And again, if I understand right, this order is really uh, not a, a, a moratorium on evictions per se, but a moratorium on the posting of notices. Uh, KC Tenants, the group that uh, lot lobbies on behalf of tenants' rights, wanted uh, the judge to do a lot more here. They got half a bite of the sandwich. They're willing to take it for now. And I just would point out, Nick, that this KC Tenants organization Boy, have they had an impact on this community. I haven't seen a grassroots organization come down the pike that's had this kind of impact this consistently in a long time. Eric. Yeah, and I, I agree with Steve. And I, I think that uh, what we do is we come back and we re revisit this in about two weeks. One of the other factors that we, don't, we haven't talked about in this is the weather. With the weather changing and getting colder, and now with all the drive with the homeless people, 
that have died over the past uh, couple of weeks because of the weather. Now's not the time to be throwing people out into the cold. Another, so I think uh, yeah. that was a factor in that as well. Another factor, which we haven't discussed, was the landlords themselves. And some of them are saying, well, if we can't be collecting rent, Michael Mahoney, from tenants, uh, we're not even going to bother to do this anymore. Uh, and that might mean less housing available for people to rent in the future. Yeah, that's the other side of this equation. And the sense is that there are lots of landlords in Kansas City and in our area, Nick, that are not big housing moguls by any stretch of the imagination. It's small businessmen that might have a few properties. And if they're not getting rent, they can't pay the note on their, on their properties. And there needs to be a balance struck on this. But Steve makes a really, really good point here about the high profile and effectiveness of the, uh, of the Tenants Association. And to kind of tie that all back to it is if Kansas City gets more housing money, that might also go into the mayor's housing trust fund, which is something that he's been talking about for two years, but doesn't have much money in it. And that could sort of springboard that. Yes, Kat. Yeah, just a few more things uh, to talk about the landlord aspect of this. A survey done back in October by the KC Regional Housing Alliance did find that nearly half of landlords plan to sell some or all of their properties if the situation did not change soon. So it is impacting them. They've been able to get some income through the United Way. Uh, 211 has been connecting people with resources and paying landlords directly on behalf of tenants. Uh, but the CARES Act money was kind of all spent by the end of December. Um, finally, I just want to note, you know, this is a temporary suspension that only lasts two weeks. But the hope is that after January 24th, the Biden administration will do something that is more lasting and more permanent. So we uh, could see the picture change again. Eric. I know personally, uh, at least four landlords that have started selling their properties and one of them actually sold all of his. It was a combination of this uh, situation and the ordinances in the city uh, rules and regulations that they placed on landlords that made it difficult. And you're absolutely right. When landlords start selling their properties to other people, then that's going to affect the amount of housing that's going to be available in the area. Next up, a tale of two speeches. In the office of Missouri governor. In the office of Missouri governor. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. This week, around 2,000 guests gathered on the lawn of the Missouri Capitol to witness the inauguration of Governor Mike Parson. And over in Topeka, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly was abandoning all pomp and circumstance to deliver her annual State of the State address in a remarkably different way. Was her only audience a camera operator? Evening. Typically, I would deliver the State of the State address to the legislature and the public from the House chamber in the Capitol building. And I would begin by looking out over all the familiar faces, but these aren't typical times. That, Steve Krosky, was not a typical speech, was it? No, not at all, Nick. And I just would point out that Laura Kelly's speech, a little more substantive, she was delivering a state of the state address. Mike Parson over in Missouri, Nick, was delivering an inaugural address, his state of the state address which is typically more uh, focused on issues and the budget and what's going on. That'll come here in a few weeks. Both speeches, fairly low key, not a lot of news. I think COVID simply dominating too much right now. Was there anything we learned from either of those speeches that we didn't know before? There, yeah, here, here's one. Uh, number one, um, the, the Kelly agenda is largely uh, 
unfinished business from last year. That, that's to be expected. She did have some moving pass, passages in this about um, bipartisan civility. Now, they, they always all say that, but this seemed to have a little bit more emotion behind it. And she even noted that these are not normal times and we can't act in a normal uh, normal fashion. And it was a, a, an inferred reference to the uh, Capitol uh, attack. Steve is ex exactly right. The State of the State speech coming from Parson at the end of this month will have a lot more meat on it than the inaugural, which is always more aspirational. Cat. Yeah, and you have to look, too, at the juxtaposition of Laura Kelly specifically mentioned sedition in the Capitol riots. She specifically spoke about that, whereas a person, the text of his speech did not make any specific mention um, talking about what happened in D.C. It used more general phrases, uh, and then he answered some questions at the end of his speech, but he didn't quite call it out in the same way that Governor Kelly did. Two other things that came up in uh, Laura Kelly's speech in Kansas was the fact that she was looking at Medicaid expansion again, even though she's now facing a more conservative legislature than last year, that she arguably would say that's going to be much more difficult this time than last year even. And also, Steve Kraske, she talks about this digital Netflix tax we've heard about before, where you want to start charging streaming services, taxing them, and places like eBay and Etsy that currently don't have any tax on them, and that would bring in about $80 million a year. I can't imagine a, a sales tax is going to go down well with a more conservative legislature either. I think you just answered that question very well, Nick. You're absolutely right. This legislature is more conservative. Tax increases won't go down well. She's been pushing, Democrats have been pushing this idea for a number of years. At some point, it might go through, but I'm not holding my breath for it this year. For many Kansas Cityans, the Chiefs will be the most welcome distraction of the week. The team's first playoff game is this weekend. The Chiefs will take the field Sunday afternoon against the Cleveland Browns. Meanwhile, while they're reluctant to share details, the Kansas City Police Department is quietly planning another Super Bowl parade. But if the Chiefs win, is it possible there won't be one? Citing concerns over COVID, President-elect Joe Biden is canceling the traditional inauguration parade this year. Instead, they're hosting a virtual parade. If Kansas City wins the Super Bowl, is there any talk of canceling the parade here and hosting a virtual event, Eric? No, they're going to do it. They're going to come out. They're going to have their mask on. We're talking back-to-back -back Super Bowl wins. Oh, they're going to be out there, and it's going to be a ball out there. Even during you a know, pandemic, Kat? Even with the pandemic. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, Nick, I do think that there's this sense amongst Kansas Cityans and just Chiefs fans in general that in this absolutely horrific year-long ordeal we've been through, the Chiefs have been one of the only good things we can all That's hold fun. on to. And so I think that it would be very unpopular to cancel. I think people will be wearing masks, um, but I, I do not see it being canceled. Um, also, you know, with security concerns, those play into the inauguration parade being canceled, whereas this is not a political event. So I think that that changes the dynamic just a little bit. Michael. And having some experience organizing big parades in Kansas City with the St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee, um, we canceled the uh, parade in uh, 2020 because of COVID. I expect that there's going to be some pushback towards drawing lots of people downtown to a parade to celebrate a possible Super Bowl victory, but it will still happen, but there will be that, uh, that debate. Um, parade organizers love big crowds, but so does COVID. But Steve, you were mentioning earlier that the Kansas City Star editorial board was right when it comes to not trying to relax any COVID rules in Kansas City. In your view then, does that mean we should think twice about a parade? Well, 
no, because this is Kansas City. We love our football. We love our Chiefs. Eric Wesson's right. Back-to-back Super Bowls would be something you couldn't stop this city from going out and celebrating, Nick. All righty. When you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every local story grabbing the headlines. What was the big story we missed? The FBI warns Kansas and Missouri officials to prepare for possible armed action at our state capitol building starting this weekend. The only woman on federal death row executed after murdering a pregnant Missouri woman, removing her baby and passing it off as her own. A Kansas City councilman now calling for the police chief to resign. Eric Bunch is the first city council member to call for Rick Smith to be fired. The Kansas City Symphony returning this weekend for the first time since March, after 300 people being allowed into the Kaufman Center to watch. And Restaurant Week continuing through Sunday, more than 100 restaurants offering multi-course meal deals, eateries desperate to get any business. Eric Wesson, did you pick one of those or something completely different? I picked two of those. Eric Bunch uh, joining the outcry to get rid of the chief of police and the Kansas City store removing Nelson's name from their letterhead after uh, a century of benefiting off of his business, they decide to kick him to the curb. I didn't add the police chief story with Eric Bunch because it's been, we've talked about that so many times, nothing happens, he has no plans to re retire, plans to leave, and the city council doesn't have a say over who the police chief is. Uh, you're exactly right, but having somebody other than the black civil rights organization start making that outcry might start gaining some traction as well. But one other thing real quick, Nick, it's interesting that they haven't mentioned how many Kansas City, Missouri police officers were in D.C. during the uh, terrorist action that took place there. Steve. I agree with uh, Eric completely here. To have a fourth district councilman, Nick, from the, the Plaza Westport area come out against the police chief is significant. You're right. The council can't fire this guy. But th this story is not going away. The, the struggles and the controversy around Rick Smith continue. Michael Mahoney. Uh, it's not really something that we overlooked, but I think uh, we need to keep uh, a real careful eye on this, is the pace of vaccinations in Kansas City and in Kansas uh, uh, City Metro and bo both of our states. It's not where it needs to be. And let's watch how long it takes to pick up the pace. Cat. I'm going to go with something completely different, which is the changes we're seeing to social media in light of what happened last week from the president's accounts being suspended, even Amazon, which hosted Parler, uh, pulling down the site. I think that we are going to continue to see people leaving some of the traditional social media sites and going elsewhere. Um, I listened to a, a concerning New York Times report today about some of the planning for Inauguration Day that's happening now on the dark web, where everything's encrypted and it's much harder for long enforcement to track those threats. So I think that that is a really big thing to keep an eye on. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed, giving up their time for zero compensation to help us better understand our week. Thank you, Kat Reed from 41 Action News, Eric Wesson from The Call, Channel 9's Michael Mahoney, and keeping you up to date weekdays at 9 on KCURFM, Steve Kraske. And I'm Nick Haynes. From all of us here at Kansas City PBS, keep calm and carry on.